Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. What drives Business Fight Poverty? And how can the community be useful to you? We normally really struggle to get Zahid, the co-founder and CEO of Business Fights Poverty, to take the stage and share his story publicly. This is a really rare and special conversation. During this podcast, you are going to hear his backstory, as well as behind the scenes workings. For example, Zahid is sharing why Business Fights Poverty is a B Corp, what the theory of change is around purposeful collaboration, and why the frontiers of business and social impact are the place to be. If you want to know what the future holds for Business Fight Poverty, stay tuned. Zahid is here talking to the Sung Kwan Kwan University in South Korea. He is in conversation with Magdalena Seol, part of the Department of Political Science and Diplomacy. In a sense, uh, Business Facts Poverty is all about connection. It's a community. We have about 30,000 individuals, organisations who, as Magdalena says, uh, they share a passion for uh, driving towards a more equitable and resilient future, really harnessing business specifically to that end. And I suppose, you know, thinking about your conversation today around governance, global governance, how you achieve big global uh, goals, really business fights poverty, you could describe it as an experiment in a new form of agile collaboration. We are constantly learning, we're constantly evolving, but really what drives us is to find new ways to collaborate rapidly across traditional boundaries across the world on the big systemic issues that face us. And, you know, being part of this conversation for me is also a chance to learn from you and what you're finding in uh, your work. And, you know, I'd love to think about how we can improve how we um, drive that collaboration. Um, I suppose in terms of my uh, personal journey, so, you know, going back now 30 years when I was doing my undergraduate I specialised in, in, in um, institutional economics and uh, international relations, and that really sparked uh, an interest, which really became a lifelong passion for how do we collaborate more effectively on the big social issues of the day, in fact, the big global challenges of the day. I've always felt personally, and I'd love to discuss this with you, that the forms of collaboration that we have, the forms of global governance that we have are not really fit for purpose. They tend to be very heavy bureaucratically, very slow. And really what we need is a much more agile and fluid, organic way of bringing the best people together to solve problems quickly. So that's really the mission that we're on is to understand how can we contribute to that collaboration. I suppose that at a personal level, the other thing to mention as you might have noticed from my name, is that I um, come from quite a mixed background. I was born in Karachi, actually, in Pakistan, 
during the war that created Bangladesh, which is where my father is from. But I grew up in the UK. I have heritage from Ireland and Burma and Germany. And I live in Spain. I'm married to a Spanish uh, woman who actually, Yvette, who is the co-founder of Business Rights Property, I should say. And so you know, I've always been existing in this sort of strange international context, never quite fitting in. But I've realized in recent years that that has perhaps fueled my passion for building bridges, for finding connection, for creating belonging for people who are passionate about the same sort of issues that I am. So, and I think like you, Magdalene, you know, I've, my, my career has been quite mixed. You know, I've worked, as you've seen on the screen there, I've worked for the British government, I've worked for the government in Guyana, I've worked in the private sector for a number of years. I've worked as a teacher, actually, in Zimbabwe for a while. And all of those experiences really have, each one of them have really convinced me that business and enterprise, more broadly, has a really powerful role to play in solving or being part of the solution on some of the really important social issues and environmental issues that we face today. And I started the network, as, as you mentioned, going back to I see it was around the G8 in 2005, um, it, and it has just evolved um, ever since then. We have a group of companies in the middle. We have about 100 content partners. We have about 30, as I say, about 30,000 or so individuals. And those individuals, are, they work in companies, they're students, they're academics, they're, you know, they work in NGOs, in, in a whole range of different dimensions. And what's really been, I think, a lesson for me personally from the last of 12 months or so since the pandemic hit is really how amazing humanity is when we come together you know when we when we make those connections across boundaries and we come together in new ways to share our collective intelligence and our wisdom to solve for big issues so i think you know overall it's for me been a a positive example of what we can do together on issues yeah, and I think there's so so many big issues that we're all facing, I'm sure you're discussing, that I think would be appropriate for this sort of model. But perhaps I'll pause there. Okay. Now, talking about uh, business fights poverty, I my understanding is that business, business fights poverty as well is corporation, right? Is it mm-hmm. is it right that we should understand business fights poverty as a as a corporation and enterprise? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So technically, we're a B corporation, which is a form of social enterprise, which, uh, and if you've not heard about B Corps, I strongly recommend you have a look at at them. It's a very interesting model. But basically, it embeds in the model a balance between profit and purpose and a clear social mission. You're verified against certain social and environmental standards, uh, governance standards. But it's really, if you look at the, the organizations that are B Corps, it's quite a range, including some very large organizations like Danone, but also lots of small enterprises. And it's really about, and the reason we became a B Corp and the reason where we are a company is we believe in the power of business to have a positive impact. And so we felt we should live by that same standard. And, um, you know, if you look at the members of our network, there's a whole range of forms and, and, and formats that they come from. And I think we're recognizing and generally people are recognizing that you do not have to work for an NGO to have a social impact. In fact, when you step behind 
the organizational structure and the brands and and all that actually we're all human beings who share a passion for certain things and and if you can build coalitions around shared priorities then it doesn't really matter which organization you're from and and each organization as i'm sure we'll talk about in a minute brings certain things to the table but i i suppose if there's one thing i've learned in the last 25 30 years it's that there are two things that are most important in an effective collaboration one is finding a way to tap into our collective insights so recognizing that not, no, no, no single one of us has a solution but but together we have a solution uh, and the second is that you need to focus intentionally on building trust and you know because if you can strengthen trust and with that trust build relationships that lead to new insights then then you you, know, you can solve a lot of things. And there's a, I don't know if you've, you've seen it, but the Edelman Trust Barometer that comes out every year. This year, it was very interesting. There's two numbers that really you need to know. One is 86% and the other is 61%. The 86% is the proportion of respondents who feel business should take a stand on social and other global issues. So that's 86% of people expect business to be part of these solutions. The other figure, 61%, which is very striking, it's the, it's the trust score. So the proportion who trust business, 61%. But what's striking is that no other organization is trusted in the survey, government, media, NGOs. It was only business that was trusted and 61% felt that they were trusted. So, so when you combine those figures, Business has to be at the table and it has to be thinking about how it can leverage its leadership and build its trust and, and build off that, that set of relationships that it's created. So, so yes, I think, I think it's a, um, you know, I think it's a very important sort of idea that, that no matter what your organizational form, you need to be at the table and business as part of that needs to be at the table. Okay. Thank you for that. I think, I mean, business fights poverty definitely is a great example of, you know, we were just talking about how all these uh, different sectors are actually becoming blurry in, in terms of the provision of uh, global public goods. And for sure, uh, Business Fights Poverty has, is a social business entity, but we can obviously see, you know, uh, there are, you know, the things that business community can actually, and, and business entity can actually drive positive uh, impact in, in global public sphere that we've just uh, discussed. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, we, we have this evidence of the 61% of trust score, which none of the other actors actually uh, have not reached to that level. Um, and so which, which calls for businesses actions to, to jump into uh, this, this public sphere. Okay, so um, you know it's it's been maybe two decades or more than two decades that you have been in this space. Now, how has uh, the community grown this far, and what do you think are the kind of the, the drivers that that allowed this growth over you know longer than two decades? Well, I think there's a broader couple of broader trends that have been very interesting that have led to not only our own growth but I think the growth of of a subject or, the, or interest in the, in the idea of business as a force for good. One is an understanding of how business can make a difference. 
And a lot of this actually comes from the work of Jane Nelson, who I mentioned earlier. And we've worked extensively with Jane, actually, on, on this area. But what's interesting is, is the evolution in, in how business thinks about itself and how society thinks about business in, in the way in which business can make a difference. So you know, traditionally, you might look at philanthropy or CSR, community investment type programs. But I think people have recognized that while that's important, of course, even more important is the core business. So how can you create business in a way that has a positive impact in terms of creating jobs, opportunities across the value chain, uh, products and services that meet social needs, environmental needs, and, and business models really that, that create value for society. And then in addition to both then the sort of community investment philanthropy and the core business, is the role of business in advocacy. And that's, I think that's a newer area and very, I think, very exciting when you think about how business can add its voice. And I think um, business has shown that it has a very important place in that, particularly where perhaps even politicians have not been as vocal on issues like climate change or women's rights or, or racial equity and so on. So I think that's really important. So I think that's one thing is, is people have understood that, that actually there's a much bigger role for business than business in play through its core business and advocacy. But that also is more complicated. So a lot of the focus uh, and a lot of our focus is, is how do you do that? How do you leverage your core business? How do you uh, advocate effectively? I think the other big trends that I've noticed is in our understanding as society around the, the nature of the challenges that we face. You know, gone are the days where you could have a small project and think that you've solved the issue. I think we recognize that a lot of the big issues are very systemic. And I think if you, if you look at COVID-19, I think one thing that really exposed was um, some of the really important systemic challenges that we face. Because if you look at issues like gender or race, for example, the impact of COVID-19 was far greater by, for women and for people. Um, of colour. And that dates back to lots of wider issues. Plus, on top of that, the pandemic has exacerbated some of those issues. So we've done quite a lot of work, for example, on gender-based violence, which already, depending on the figures you look at, between one in three and one in four women face gender, um, some sort of violence. That has gone up by at least 20% during the pandemic. So, uh, and on top of that, depending again what, what data you look at, uh, between 20 and 30 and 20 and 50 years, actually, we've been pushed back in terms of the progress on gender equality. Um, I mean, the progress on, on, on poverty reduction, at least 10 years. So, so there's lots of really big, complex issues that we know we can't solve alone. And, and therefore, a lot of emphasis has, has been placed nowadays on moving from individual action and even before, even beyond transactional type partnerships to what to towards people and transformational partnerships that try and deal with systemic issues. So, so if you add this sort of more complex understanding of the role of business with the more complex nature of the problems they're trying to solve, then organizations like Business Rights Property, but also many, many others around the world, including many in, in, in your region, I think have have played an important role in trying to understand how we move forward and, and, and sort of learning how we can do things more effectively together. Thank you. I mean, the 
your comment on the nature of the, the intelligence that we need to build now and how businesses are actually have to contribute on that way as well is uh, it's very interesting. So over the, you know, uh, 20 years or 25 years, I suppose that you kind of uh, played a role of uh, maybe an enabler or, or a catalyst of, you know, creating all these different partnerships. And uh, do you see, have there been any uh, changes on, you know, the, the types or nature of the partnerships thus far, I mean, over the 20 or 25 years, or have there been any moment or a particular time when you've, you've witnessed um, a sudden change or, or sudden shift in terms of the, the types or the characters, uh, characteristics of, of uh, partnerships you build? So actually, I think, honestly, in the last, well, since last March, when the pandemic uh, was declared, I've seen more activity on partnerships, more exciting developments of partnerships than in the previous 25 or so years that I've been working on this issue. And I say that because there are so many examples of how people have moved forward with partnerships in a matter of weeks, when normally it might take a matter of years. And in fact, we've, we've been looking at, at this through uh, a number of uh, our own studies to understand why is this the case? And, and actually, importantly, could this be the case going forward on other issues like climate change? And what we found is there are a number of, sort of key principles or ideas that really underpin the new types of partnerships. And, and what we hope is that these will continue. But, but for example, the, you know, having a very clear why is, is so important to having to driving quick action. So obviously, in, cost, in, the, in the context of the pandemic, it was a, an emergency situation. We understood we had to respond immediately and then move hopefully to recovery and then hopefully beyond that to rebuilding better. So there was that shared understanding. We all have experienced this right around the world. So that sort of sense of connection, a shared experience. I mean, of course, it's impacted vulnerable people much more than others. But, but I think we all still have a shared sense of what we have to do. and. You know, I think an example of this is the work that's, that we've been partly involved in in Kenya around um, health and hygiene behaviour change and getting PPE out to rural communities and, and, and um, you know, hand-washing stations and so on. But there's a real sense in, in that moment of we've got to do something now and we know, what we, you know, we know that we have to come together to do that. So, so that sort of sense of clarity around why was really important and, and I think we need to learn from that going forward around, for example, climate justice and other big issues. He's being very clear about what is the shared question that we're trying to solve for. I think the other important piece there is around understanding who needs to be part of that solution very clearly. And uh, to our earlier conversation, actually, the recognising that we all have something to bring to the table. And in the case of Kenya, again, to use that example, you know, some organisations, they were marketing companies, some were distribution experts, some were health experts, some worked with youth, um, some worked with digital, but they all had something to bring and they all came, they all sort of set aside traditional competitive tendencies to think about how we could collaborate. And I think, I think that was a really exciting thing to see is, is if you can be very clear around who has to be there, then you can really achieve some important things. And, and as part of that, of course, understanding what you will bring to the table. 
I think one thing I'd say specifically, actually, that I've really been struck by, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, is that because of the the technology that we all have to connect through nowadays, it also means we can connect much more than we might have been able to in the past. So, so the idea you can bring new voices into the conversations, um, you know, young people, people from, if you like, the, the groups of vulnerable people that we're talking about into the conversation. I think there's a really exciting way to actually reframe who should be at the table in these conversations. I think gone are the days, hopefully, where it's a rich sort of Western, white, sort of driven organisation that is sort of taking us an old style approach to solving problems towards a much more you know, global approach where everyone is part of the solution, especially those who are affected and who are most proximate to the challenges. So I think, I think that's really exciting. We saw that in a number of cases. I think um, a very clear understanding about you know, how we do that. Um, we saw, obviously, as I mentioned, use of technology, but, but lots of different ways in which people came together in, in very agile forms. So I think you, know, you look at the, the structures that were created and they were very light and agile and fast and they prioritised action over perfection. And I think you, know, you look at a lot of organisations that have been created to solve big issues globally and they, they've got big marble offices, they've got a CEO, a chair, a, a heavy governance structure and they just are very slow. And I think what has been demonstrated is that you can, you can have much lighter forms of institutional structure. And in fact, you have to have lighter forms to deal with, especially rapid onset challenges, but I, I think even for some of the bigger ones as well. So, so I think, yeah, lot, so this year, I think we, we need, we're still obviously learning because we're still in the pandemic. But I think if we could learn from how do we collaborate effectively from this experience, I think that would be a great thing going forward. So uh, it's building on from, from your responses. Uh, you know, I, I think in, in one of one of your previous comments, you mentioned there is a you know, particular role that businesses businesses can play. Can you elaborate more on, on that part? What are the kind of key areas or the concrete ways that you have seen in which uh, only businesses can can fill in? Um, maybe I'll, I'll um, preface my response to that by saying, you know, I've worked for government for many years and I, okay. I believe in government and I think government should always lead on, on tackling these big collective action issues, whether it's national or, or even better, multi sort of multinational forms of governance are, are, you know, must be at the front of this. Having said that, business has an important role to play. And I think there I'd say there's possibly three areas which business can bring something quite unique to the table. One, I'd say, is as a source of innovation, whether that's ideas but, or whether it's products and services. But I think the most exciting shift that probably I've seen is a shift from seeing social environmental issues as a matter of risk and cost reduction towards seeing them as an opportunity for growth and, and, and innovation. And I think some of the companies that I'm most impressed by have taken these issues and thought, actually, I can solve for this through my business. And I think that source innovation is, is exciting. I think it's needed when you look at big issues like climate and 
and also social and, and a whole range of things actually. But I think, you know, this, this idea of innovation I think is, is, is very uh, important and, and business clearly is, is key to that. A second part of it would be around scale. I know so often you, you hear about really exciting projects, which are very impressive, but do not achieve scale. You know, they, they don't reach enough people. They don't make enough difference, really, for enough people. So I think the idea that business has worked out how to reach many people, whether it's, you know, through their business model or through the, the markets that they're part of, I think the the idea of leveraging markets to get scale is so important given the scale of the challenges that we're facing. I think the, the related point on that is if you think about the spheres of influence that business has, whether it's customers, employees, suppliers, distributors, and you add on to this this trust figure, 61%, business is a really important voice in driving change and you know take a practical example we're part of a coalition called business partners to convince which uh, which is essentially it's a covid19 vaccine alliance trying to drive vaccine literacy and uptake and there's it's, it's driven by the city university of new york and the london school of hygiene and tropical medicine and the united states council for international business but they've just launched a, a workplace challenge, which is all about trying to leverage the influence that employers have to encourage employees to, to take the vaccine, but also to drive wider issues like equity and access in communities to the vaccine. So, so I think that whole question of scale is very important, whether it's around delivery of a particular product or about delivery of a message. So I think that's, that's really important. And that's where the advocacy piece comes in as well, because business together can be really important uh, in driving things onto the agenda. And then maybe a third area I highlight is sustainability. And when I say sustainability here, I mean in the sense of it will go on for a long time. And I think, again, really interesting projects that maybe even a company might have, which are more about philanthropy or CSR, you know, if the CEO changes or there's a market downturn, those are the first, first things that tend to be cut. Whereas if something is embedded in the core business, then these things can roll out forever. And I think probably the best example of this that I can think of is, is the M-Pesa money transfer program that Vodafone as Faricom launched in East Africa, which has been going for, 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 for years and, and has reached millions and millions of people and will continue to, to grow. So I think, um, those are the sorts of things you want to think about is, is how can business be a source of that innovation for social, environmental, positive change? How can they leverage their, their scale and how can they do so in a way that's truly sustainable? Actually, your, your comment uh, with regard to the scale and, and sustainability as well, I, it, it reminds me of one of my recent conversations with my former colleagues in Africa and we were talking about these uh, zip lines and all these drones, uh, you know, providing, you know, all, uh, all the like uh, critical medical supplies to all these, you know, far away rural areas. That really is an innovation that a small enterprise uh, created, right? 
And then we were having you know, conversation about it. Okay, now how are we going to reach scale with this business model? What we're talking is that maybe you know a company like Amazon, what if they, they, they merge or they buy that, that enterprise so that it could really scale up in, in multiple locations around the world? That, that actually is a possible option. Um, I, think, I think it would work if, if, if uh, things work. So, uh, you know, mm. the, the problem, I mean, the, your comment at scale really resonates with that conversation I had uh, just like last week um, mm. uh, with my colleagues. I, th- I think it's, you know, I often get, uh, I have a lot of conversations with different people in, who work in large companies. And, you know, I say to them, one of the, most exciting things about the roles that they um, have is they have access to massive platforms for change. I mean, I was just looking at yesterday at Walmart and their commitment to go to, to become a regenerative company, I think by 2040, I think it was. But when someone like Walmart or Amazon or any of these companies do something, they do so at such a big scale that it makes a massive impact to the overall effort that we're all trying to you know, work towards. Right, right. Now, uh, moving on to maybe the issue areas, can you, can you share some, some of the most recent agenda or issues or topics that Business Fights Poverty have focused on or not Business Fights Poverty focused on, but maybe you know, those issues were actually brought to uh, Business Fights Poverty in one way or another, you, I mean, you mentioned about, uh, you know, what, what has happened after, you know, COVID and, and since the March of last year. But uh, besides that, uh, can you share more about uh, some of the, the agendas or issues and topics that uh, you've seen arising uh, in recent years, maybe even a little, you know, before uh, COVID? Yeah, thanks for the question. I, you know, I think obviously a lot of the issues that people are working on They've been working on for decades and all their careers. So it's not that these are new issues. But I think what the pandemic has done is really highlight both many of the big systemic issues, but also the importance of collaborating to solve them. So, for example, we've worked quite a long time on, on women's economic empowerment. And that was one of my roles, actually, when I worked in government. But I've noticed a real increase in a sense of urgency around how do you on the one hand, for example, tackle gender-based violence. On the other, how do you use digital to really support women entrepreneurs, grow their businesses, and, and use digital to, to have scale you know, in, in how you do that? And all of this sort of really wraps into a broader conversation that's happening right now around how we rebuild better. How do we use this opportunity to take a lot of these issues and make sure they are part of the conversation going forward, even when hopefully COVID is a distant memory? And I think there's a number of issues that fall into that category, if you like, one apart, apart from gender. One is uh, obviously race and obviously the whole sort of um, experience in the US, I think, has been quite an important driver of the global conversation as well on race. But understanding that there are certain people who face certain systemic barriers that then have an influence in the extent to which they are impacted by big issues whether it's COVID or anything else. I think the, um, though those sorts of issues, I think, uh, you know, will be hopefully a, a big focus for us over the next sort of coming year or so, at least. And then on top of that, you've got 
issues like food systems strengthening and whole issues around health systems and education systems, you know, all big issues that have, have been there. I mean, take, take education, for example, um, just before the pandemic hit, we were doing quite a lot of work around future skills and the impact of automation and, um, and those, sorts of, those sorts of trends for young people. And of course, with COVID and perhaps even more so with climate, we're recognising that the jobs of today are not the jobs of tomorrow. And therefore, the skills of today are not the skills of tomorrow. So how do you, what are the skills you need? And how do you move towards a model of, uh, call it people-centric, lifelong learning, rather than saying, I'm going to go to university 30 years ago and then think that's enough. Uh, no, we have to learn every day. So, so um, I think there's some really interesting elements of the Rebuild Better agenda. I think the other piece, clearly for this year in particular, is around climate with COP26 coming up, you know, we obviously, from our name, you know, we come more from the social side. So you might wonder why we are focused on climate. But it, it struck us that actually the social dimension of climate is so important and so overlooked, actually, often in conversation. When you think about the impact of climate change, again, it's driven by issues like gender and race and, and um, all sorts of issues like that. But also in terms of the transition to a green economy, on the one hand, you're leaving behind huge communities, for example, in northern China, in terms of the move away from fossil fuel. And also, you know, how do you ensure that as you move towards the new technologies of, say, green energy, how do you ensure that um, women, for example, are active participants in that? And therefore, the whole issue around participation in STEM education and, and, and so on. So I think... There are lots of big issues coming down the track very fast around climate justice, as, as we would call it, but essentially a social dimension of climate. And I think, you know, for us, if you if we sort of simplify what we do, we sort of think about for any issue, on the one hand, what are the big issues that people are facing in terms of lives, livelihoods, and access to learning? And how can business make a difference through their core business, their philanthropy and their policy advocacy? And how can you amplify that through partnership? So that's sort of broadly how we would frame any issue. But I think there, there are a number of big social and environmental issues that are coming, uh, that are going to hit this year and, and are hitting already, of course. So I think it's, a, it's a, in a sense, it's a good time to be thinking about this because we need new forms of collaboration if we are going to be able to do these and make progress on these issues. I think uh, earlier in, in, uh, in our conversation, you mentioned about the importance of, of building trust when you build partnerships. Of course, maybe working on all these uh, maybe different incentives uh, to different organizations and different parties, you know, making that happen, you know, it, it also, to me, uh, you know, it looks like an art, like, you know, you're trying to, you know, make a philanthropic organizations work together with all these commercial, let's say commercial banks, investors or, or corporations. And it's, it's, it's very difficult work actually and building trust among, uh, you're maybe trying to govern different animals, right? What's your secret sauce of building <laughs> trust, you know, when you manage all these different animals? Yeah, that's it. That's a really good question. And so we're learning still. So if you have any ideas, I'd like to hear them. But in terms of what we have done, 
and we keep refining the model, but we have a model which we in we refer to as challenges. But basically, what we do is we find questions. Our starting point is this clear why. You know, we find the question that people care about passionately, irrespective of which organization you might work for or your background. So what are the big questions that you're grappling with? Because once you have a once you frame something as a question, it's a very empowering thing because you you sort of immediately sort of get people thinking about what the solutions might be to those questions. And so you have to start with a clear question that people care about and then be committed to having a genuine two-way conversation around that question. So we start with a clear question. The second thing is we then think about who should be involved. So although we have a very wide network, we actually start by saying, okay, who are the people, who are the best minds on this specific question? And that person might be in Korea, might be in Kenya, might be in the US. You know, we're agnostic in terms of where they're from. We just want to find the best people. And that could be 30 people. It could be 500 people. But who are the best people on that issue? And importantly, who wants to step in and, and help solve that issue? Because actually you need that motivation from, from sort of obviously that side as well. And then we, once we have that sort of clear question, the clear of sense of who's going to be involved we then define a very clear what you know what are we going to do specifically on this question because these these issues are massive you know gender-based violence or vsdgs they're huge big issues that can be quite daunting and can paralyze you into inaction so what we try and do is say okay we're going to take this specific question and we're going to do this specific thing that will move the needle on this and that might be as simple as uh, for example how can we ensure that we, we equip the people in our, in our company to, and in our value chain to tackle issues around gender-based violence in the, work, in, in the workplace? And so what tools they need, how we can get those resources out? So it can be very, very specific. In fact, it needs to be very, very specific. And then once we've defined that, we also put a retype time frame on it. We typically, before COVID, we would do 10 months would be a typical timeframe. Um, during COVID, we reduced that to 10 days. And the 10-day version we found is much better because it just keeps people focused. You have no time for discussing definitions and scope and that sort of thing. You just have to get on with it. We're probably going to settle post-COVID on more like two to three months, I think, uh, to allow a bit more room to, to breathe around, around the issues. But then the, once you have that sort of clear sort of deadline, we then make sure that the, the how, the process is very interactive. So that in practice, it might take the form of groups of six people, groups of 30 people meeting, research, surveys, universities coming in to bring in their expertise. We would always have a content partner, actually, who might be an NGO and or university. Um, Jane actually has been part of probably about 30 or more of these. And once you have that framework set up, what's really interesting when you, as a reserver to that, once you have a very clear focus and a, a, and a sense of purposeful collaboration, as we, we like to call it, a really interesting thing happens at a human level. People stop being a big ego with a big title and a big brand, and they just become a human being who cares about something that another human being cares about. And I've noticed how if you can create this sort of this sort of framework, you can build trust very fast, even in 10 days, but you know, three months is even better, 
And then because people are coming back over and over again to do these challenges, you know, when, once you sort of get 10 years down the road, these people have come together in various different ways and you're building this sort of density of connection in the community. And, you know, our mission ultimately is to build, I would call it a social brain where the different synapses are being connected you know, internationally. And because we are, you think about the challenges of the nodes almost, you know, once you, you, you keep working together as a community on different issues, then our hope is that we would have then built much deeper levels of trust through, through action. So it's not that you can go and say, trust me, you actually have to do something together to, to, to generate that, that trust. And I think that's been our experience, but I've also observed, observed it in some of the partnerships that we've studied, where as soon as the partnership has moved from being transactional, so I'm going to pay you to do something for me, to transformational, where let's work out what we're going to solve together, then it becomes a very different type of relationship. And I think a much more valuable um, type of relationship. So I hope many of you guys who are sitting here would join in that social brain. <laughs> uh, I hope many of you actually will jump into, uh, you know, becoming part of that social brain. One last question is, you know, given that you've worked in, you know, all, you know, different sectors, you know, in the government and business and, and social uh, nonprofits, with regard to, I, I think we didn't uh, talk much about this relationship between government and, and um, businesses, but have you seen any cases where, of course, there are many cases where it's, it's visibly, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, um, it's visible, uh, visibly available to recognize how corporations partner with nonprofits with a lot of um, social, um, to tackle a lot of social uh, topics, issues. Now, have you seen any examples? or maybe innovative cases where governments actually partner with um, businesses or businesses partner with uh, governments to really do something transformative, not transactional? Yeah, great question. I, so I, I think there's a number of levels to this. One is there are clearly, if you like, the rules of the game that governments need to put in place. And that is, essentially, that is essential for the effective operation of a market generally. But beyond that, issues around human rights, environmental laws, social laws, and so on. Clearly, government has a really important role to play there. Uh, I would add into that also, of course, payment of tax and an effective collection of tax, and then obviously use of tax revenues. And I would say that was I used to work for the Treasury, but um, you know, taxation and finance is obviously central to this. So there are certain relationships between business and government which are much more about the rules of the game and, and which are critical. Given that, and taking that as almost like this, the, you know, almost like the, this of the floor, there are really interesting examples where businesses and government have been looking to do things from more of an opportunity, opportunity perspective. And how can we together do something more? And actually, one interesting example is between the UK's, uh, what was called the Department for International Development, which I used to work for actually, and now it's called the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and Unilever. And they created a program called Transform actually. And they have also together created a program focused specifically around, around COVID, building on that, that initial relationship. But I think what they wanted to do, I think it's got a number, number of interesting aspects. One, one of them is that they had a very clear sense of we need to do something at scale 
on health and hygiene behavior change. So that's what they took as their big issue in that particular case. But then they, which is really important, they then, in a sense, stepped back and having defined what the challenge was, they then allowed lots of different people to come forward and say, well, this is how I would come together in my coalition to do this. And so that's how the initial work that we were um, involved with to some extent in Kenya managed to scale its operations because it then became under AMREF, the NGO, and the National Business Compact on Coronavirus, led by another Harvard Kennedy School alumni, Ruben um, Sadebe, who, who you might know. They really then scale their work locally. And I think what was interesting about the work is that it was really driven by local ownership and local insight. So although the program started in London, the framing allowed for local solutions uh, local-led solutions to the issues that, that the broad frame was was, was there to, to help. And, and what Unilever brought to the table was resource, money, but also expertise in terms of consumer behaviour change. And what the, what the what DFID brought to the table was an understanding of the social context and um, the relationships it had with, with you know, at the country level. So I think that, you know, that idea of Governments creating space for innovation and partnership with government, I think it's uh, partnership with government and businesses is, is, is really important. And I see this in, around the world, actually, but, but where, where government can genuinely see business as a part of the solution, and that creates you know, this sort of context for, for really innovating around new ideas. You know, other examples I've heard from, say, um, you know, I think it was in Denmark, some really interesting ideas around rather than having grant financing, you have returnable grants where if the project is successful, then you return the grant. And if it's not, you don't. Um, so there's some really interesting financing mechanisms. I think development bonds, social bonds, finance, all sorts of financing mechanisms like that, I think also are, are very exciting. So I think there's, it's, it's, a, it's a great moment for anyone of you who, who's um, in the room to be thinking about engaging in this frontier of business and global governance. I think it's there's so much to do. There's an evolving understanding of how to do it. And I think having you part of that social brain would be, would be fantastic. Okay, that would be fantastic. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.